it's good to be here together, and we may be a little depleted, but that's fine. Um, if anybody wants to move in a bit closer so you don't feel so far out, you can, but you don't have to. I might just come and join you at the back. Our call to worship this morning comes from the book of Jeremiah. The Lord said to me, go down to the potter's house where I will give you my message. So I went there and I saw the potter working at his wheel. Whenever a piece of pottery turned out imperfect, he would take the clay and make it into something else. And now let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. Loving God, we come to worship you, knowing that even before we arrived, you had already met us on our way and travelled with us so that we could be together here today. We know that all the time you have reached out in love to people to draw them towards yourself, sometimes talking in words they could hear and sometimes giving them ideas and feelings that would change the way they lived their lives. Thank you that as we meet today, you want to do that for us. We might think we hear your voice whispering in our ears, or we might feel that we're very close to you. But we might also feel as if you are far, far away and not have any hint of your quiet voice. Help us to trust that whether or not we hear you and whether or not we feel anything, you are here, surrounding us with your love and gently shaping us to be more like you. We know that sometimes we hear and listen to voices and ideas that are not from you. Things that tell us to be selfish, greedy, bitter, unkind dogmatic, aggressive, self-righteous, or many, many other things. And sometimes we don't just listen to them, we respond to them and do things we later regret or don't things we later wish don't do things we later wish we could go back and do. In the quiet of this moment, help us to recall these ideas or actions and bring them to you so that we can let go of them and be made whole once more. Gentle, forgiving God, whose mercy and love know no limit, thank you for accepting us just as we are in all our ambivalence, ambiguity and bewilderment. Help us to stay close to you, to listen for your voice in each other and in our hearts, and then to live lives transformed by your touch. We offer these prayers in Christ's name. Amen. The first reading this morning is from Psalms chapter 30. A prayer of thanksgiving. I praise you, Lord, because you have saved me and kept my enemies from gloating over me. I cry to you for help, O Lord my God, and you healed me. You kept me from the grave. 
I was on my way to the depths below, but you restored my life. Sing praise to the Lord, all his faithful people. Remember what the Holy One has done and give him thanks. His anger lasts only a moment, his goodness for a lifetime. (coughs) Tears may flow in the night, but joy comes in the morning. I felt secure and said to myself, I will never be defeated. You were good to me, Lord. You protected me like a mountain fortress. But then you hid yourself from me and I was afraid. I called to you, Lord. I begged for your help. What will you gain from my death? What profit from my going to the grave? Are dead people able to praise you? Can they proclaim your unfailing goodness? Hear me, Lord, and be merciful. Help me, Lord. You have changed my sadness into a joyful dance. You have taken away my sorrow and surrounded me with joy. So I will not be silent. I will sing praise to you. Lord, you are my God. I will give you thanks forever. And the second reading is from Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24. How Paul became an apostle. Let me tell you, my brothers, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. If I did not receive it from any man, nor did anyone teach it to me, it was from Jesus Christ himself who revealed it to me. You have been told how I used to live when I was devoted to the Jewish religion, how I persecuted without mercy the Church of God and did my best to destroy it. I was ahead of most fellow Jews of my age in my practice of the Jewish religion, and was much more devoted to the traditions of our ancestors. But God, in his grace, chose me even before I was born, and called me to serve him. And when he decided to reveal his son to me, so that that I might preach the good news about him to the Gentiles, I did not go to anyone for advice, nor did I go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me. Instead, I went to visit. I went at once to Arabia, and then I returned to Damascus. It was three years later that I went to Jerusalem to obtain information from Peter, and I stayed with him for two weeks. I did not see any other apostle except James, the Lord's brother. What I write is true. God knows that I am not lying. Afterwards, I went to places in Syria and Cilicia. At that time, the members of the churches in Judea did not know me personally. They knew only what others were saying. The man who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And so they praise God because of me. Amen. Tell me your story, said my college tutor at the beginning of my second year of training for Baptist ministry. I groaned inwardly before I began to tell the story of how my faith in Christ had developed over the previous 30 years or so, leading to the point where I was by then following this call to train as an ordained Baptist minister, subject to that being confirmed by call to a church, of course. The reason I groaned was because I'd been asked to tell that story so many times over the preceding couple of years, and it really wasn't a very exciting story. I've never been a rebel. I'd never got drunk, never taken illegal drugs. In fact, I've taken very few legal drugs in that point of my life. 
I'd never lived a life of sexual licentiousness. I'd never stolen anything, well, apart from the old biscuit when my mum wasn't looking. And I felt that my testimony was dull, that it wouldn't have any interest for anybody. But Brian, for that was my tutor's name, was a wise man, and he listened closely to what I had to say. He seemed to be genuinely interested in the six-year-old me who intuitively believed that the nativity story was true and not just another fairy story. He seemed interested in the earnest 15-year-old who had deduced for herself that there was a choice to make that would shape the rest of her life. And he was interested in the 34-year-old who had experienced a really dramatic sense of a call to ordination. All too often, testimony is equated with conversion story. And its worth sometimes seems to be measured by how bad the person's life was before and how many people in the congregation can be moved to tears by the emotion of what's shared. And I think we miss out if that's what we think testimony is. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. Firstly, testimony is not just about conversion. In fact, if it stops there and never adds on any new experience, it's quite worrying. Testimony is the ongoing story of our faith as life unfolds in all its complexity. I think this was beautifully and powerfully exemplified for us just a few weeks ago by the friends who spoke at our Pentecost service. Not one of them told us a story of a wicked life that was transformed miraculously by faith. Rather, each of them shared something of the ongoing work of transformation that discipleship brings. And yes, many of us were moved close to, or literally to tears, by the depth of what was expressed. And this leads to the second important factor about testimony. Most people embarked on the adventure of faith are actually not that bad. Most of them don't have the kind of skeletons in their cupboard that so readily titillate Christian audiences. Most people are basically quite decent. And that very law-abiding, clean-living, basically good story is never going to grab the Christian headlines. The -the run-of-the-mill, developed over many years in Sunday school and church faith, quietly expressed over a lifetime, is never going to sound that exciting. But it's no less real than the things that we find in Kingsway paperbacks. And actually, it may reflect a greater, deeper, and more lasting commitment. And then thirdly, there is this perennial conundrum of conversion as both event and process. This is one of the themes that Paul Goodliffe picks up when he visited us in April using aspects of the story of Paul and Peter. 
I think there does have to be a moment, whether we're conscious of it or not, when the penny drops. When we commit ourselves to become disciples of Jesus Christ, we say, yep, that's kind of where I'm going. But we're never, ever, any of us, the finished article. We are always a work in progress. There are always new conversions or new aspects of the one conversion to be experienced and developed. Our Bible readings this morning centre on two of the biblical greats, the Apostle Paul and King David. And in each of these readings, the prose of the letter to Galatia and the poetry of the psalm, we get a kind of testimony. Something about a change of heart that arose in these men as a result of their experiences of God. What we discover might surprise us because we probably think we know all there is to know about these two. They are pretty well known after all. We begin with Paul, who having expressed his annoyance at the way the little churches were being led astray or even backwards as a result of what he referred to as other gospels, he takes a moment or two to restate his credentials to give a short testimony to support his claims. Compared with the extensive detail and supernatural nature of what we know from the account in Acts, chapters 10 and 11, which we did look at a few weeks ago, what he has to say here is actually quite minimal. Certainly, nobody would get excited or move to an ecstatic response by what he says here. You need to know, says Paul, that I was a good man, a devout, learned, and committed Jew. I was the one you would have looked at with approval. So zealous was I that I despised the emerging Jesus movement and actively got involved in trying to snuff it out. Saul, as he was originally named, was highly respectable, and I expect respected. He would have been the one you could expect to be there every Sabbath on time, even if there were diversions and goodness knows what going on. He would be the one who knew the scriptures, who prayed fervently, who made all the right sacrifices, who kept himself richly pure and never did anything that could cause a stir. A model Jew, a model Pharisee. He was a good man. He knew for certain what was right and what was wrong, and there was no changing it. He was, if I dare suggest it, a man whose heart was hard and cold, whose faith had stagnated, and who looked with disdain on anyone who fell short of his ideas or who dared to question But, he says, God had other ideas, ideas that led to a total change of heart, an omission to take the good news of Jesus to the nations outside of Israel, to include those who had previously been excluded, to let go of outward appearances, not in a way that was licentious or debauched, but rather that recognised deeper principles and a greater wonder in the God revealed in Jesus Christ. Suddenly he was no longer a good Jew. 
He was a decidedly dodgy one. He mixed with sinners and foreigners and women. He ate questionable food. He stayed in the homes of unclean people. This was a conversion from respectability to radical discipleship, from legalism to liberation. As we ponder Paul's story from our perspective as nice, polite, law-abiding Western Christians who are part of an established faith that has a 2,000-year history, I wonder what any of that has to say to us, to you, to me. In what ways might we have become dry and hard, legalistic, zealous for the status quo and unable to respond to the transformative touch of God's spirit? In what ways do we think it's all sewn up when God might have other ideas? Could it be the case for any of us, for all of us, that cold, hard hearts need to be warmed and softened in order to be moulded into the shape of Christ? What ongoing work of conversion, what change of heart might we need? The psalm, attributed to David, offers another insight into the potential for God's work of transformation. After some opening words of praise and reminders of the nature of God whose anger is fleeting and goodness eternal, the writer makes a statement that is stark in its honesty. I was so confident that I said I was undefeatable. But life showed him that wasn't the case. He was a fallible and flawed man, just like anybody else. He made some very poor decisions with disastrous consequences, typified by his arrogant decision to take for himself another man's wife, and then when she became pregnant as a result of the affair, to get him bumped off. This sorry state of affairs escalated, leaving a trail of sorrow and suffering in its wake. And David discovered that he was not, after all, invincible, that he could not have it all his own way. And another of the Psalms, Psalm 51, is generally accepted to be his penitential hymn after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. Willful sin and disobedience aside, even those whose lives appear exemplary find their self-confidence and assurance can take a tumble as the events of life overtake them. It's suggested by the commentators that this psalm arose from an experience of ill health and quite possibly a serious or even life-threatening illness that challenged the writer's sense of invincibility. Whilst health and strength could be taken for granted, he was self-reliant. But physical weakness had undermined that. He had to rely on others to take care of him and ultimately on God to rescue him from the grip of death and Sheol. Sheol was understood by the ancients not as a medieval hell, but simply a rather shady spirit world. 
And here too, we see a glimpse of conversion, a softening and changing of heart, as the once independent king discovers his own frailty and need of dependence. He may still be rich and powerful. He may still call the shots in many aspects of life. But if he is willing to allow his experience to change him, his confidence will be chastened and its location moved from self-determination to relational co-determination. Having been given a second chance, or in David's chance, probably an umptieth chance by God, he can't simply carry on his own way, and he can't allow himself, but he can allow himself to be shaped for good by his own experiences. I wonder as we consider this psalm of David and the way that his life experiences changed him, if we find a sense of resonance with our own lives. It may not be physical or mental illness that challenge our confidence or complacency. It may be disappointment at the way that life has turned out, ambitions and dreams turned to dust. Maybe the realisation that a career in which we invested so much energy is never going to yield the status and recognition we'd hoped for. Maybe the tragedy that a relationship we dreamed would prove fulfilling is actually devoid of meaning. Maybe the pressure of caring for relatives. Maybe any number of things, and probably several at once. Our confidence takes a hit. We're not so sure of who we are or where our value lies. We're confronted with the stark reality of our innermost thoughts and feelings. And maybe we don't like what we discover. Perhaps there are hard, unyielding hearts where bitterness and resentment have set solid. Or perhaps our hearts are brittle and fragile, broken into pieces And those sharp edges wound us and others. Or maybe we have soft, malleable hearts, capable of being deeply wounded and yet mysteriously remoulded into the shape of love, hope or forgiveness. Hearts changed from closed to open, Lives changed as we discover afresh or for the first time the strength of interdependence. If conversion is a change of heart, I wonder in which ways each of us needs to be converted afresh today. Not necessarily some dramatic life-changing thing, but some small, barely discernible life affirming way. Paul's conversion was from legal dogmatism to radical inclusivity. David's conversion was from arrogant self-confidence to recognition of his frailty and dependence. It may be that one of those resonates with you, but it's equally possible that neither of them does. I wonder what God might be saying to each of us that needs to change in our hearts, our lives? Are we brave enough to open ourselves up to God 
Are we willing to become sufficiently vulnerable that we not only recognize what needs to be changed, but to allow the change to begin? You see, neither Paul nor David thought they had any need of conversion. They had it all sorted, thank you very much. So it was a complete shock to discover the truth. That may be the case for us. But generally speaking, we don't have massive light bulb moments. More typically, our transformation is gradual. When our friends shared testimony a few weeks ago, there were three really important messages that I heard and I think we do well to remind ourselves of. Firstly, a notion of community. A sense that we're in this together. That we are held in love and prayer by our siblings in Christ. It's not always very nice to have our shortfalls pointed out to us, even just privately to ourselves. But it is easier to face who we are when we know we are loved as we are. Secondly, the recognition that each one of us is a work in progress. That not one of us is perfect as a Christian. Not one of us is free from sin or temptation. But thanks to God's work in us, we are, if we're up for it, being transformed more fully into the image of Christ. And lastly was the why now, why not now response. The work of conversion is a progress, a process, sorry, not just an event. But in those simple words, we have the possibility to recognize afresh our need to place ourselves into the gentle hands of the divine potter, to be sufficiently soft and malleable, to be moulded into somebody who is yet more wonderful, yet more beautiful, yet more fully human. And if we were looking for a message to write on a postcard to Galatia today, what would it be? Perhaps it would be this. Never fall into the trap of thinking that you have arrived. Instead, open yourself to the God who changes hearts in unexpected ways. Amen. Now we are privileged to bow our heads and address our prayers to God for ourselves and for others. Let us pray. Creator Lord, humbly we come before you in prayer for ourselves and for others. Mould me and make me, Lord, such powerful words. We pray for those in our community near and worldwide, who feel like rejects from the potter's wheel, people who perhaps have physical disabilities, people who have what they conceive as mental, emotional, sexual, spiritual differences from those all around them. 
Let them see the value in them God sees, the value those who love them see. Let them say gladly, as we do, Thy way, Lord, not ours. This is a hard concept to accept. We are of a generation brought up to think we are masters of our own fate. New medical knowledge makes us feel immortal. Prosperity is our human right. Technology is all. Racial prejudice a thing of the historical past. Injustice something we can freely protest against. And when these things fail, as they so often do, we are lost, bewildered. We no longer have the certainty of ages past that can say in hope, Thy way, Lord, not ours. We pray for the parents of sick children, for the children of elderly parents lost in their own pasts, for those whose pasts cast a dark shadow of shame over their present and their future. For young people studying today for a future in which they may never be able to use the knowledge they have worked so hard to gain. Wounded and weary, help them, we pray, and let them know that no life is wasted, no sin, if truly repented, unforgivable by you, no knowledge gained without value. Let them say with us, Thy way, Lord, not ours. We pray for the lost ones, for the homeless, the broken ones, whether it be by their own addictions or the unthinking cruelty of others. Lord, remind them that the clay can be reshaped if they put their trust and will steadfastly in you. Touch them and heal them, Lord. Remould them. Give them strength to throw off the shackles of bitterness and self-hate and self-pity and say with us, Thy way, Lord, not ours. We pray for the sick and the troubled who say in the darkest of nights, Why me, Lord? Why mine? I thought I lived a good life. I thought I ate well, exercised well. Why has this illness come upon me? I tried to care for others as my brothers and sisters. I tried to use my money well. Why has someone I trusted cheated me? Why have I lost my employment? Why do I feel rejected and useless? Why has someone I love been abused and harmed by a stranger or a person I thought was a friend? Was it some fault in me? Why me? Why me? Remind us that tears may flow in the night, but joy comes in the morning, for we are held in your loving embrace, and you give us hope 
to carry on, change for the better, strength to bear what must be borne, and see in gladness, thy will, Lord, not ours. Lord, be our vision in this place, in this church. Help us to reach out and help others. Tell them the good news of your limitless love. Your divine presence be our armor against the pain of occasional defeat. Your spirit inspire us to never give up. Your love wipe away our tears and our fears. Make us and mold us in the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave us the right to lay these prayers in the potter's caring hands. Strengthen us as we put aside our pride and say, Thy way, Lord, not ours. Amen. Gentle God, we have placed ourselves afresh into your hands, opening our hearts and minds to be changed. As we rediscover our true selves, show us how we may bring the same gentle transformation to a hardened and splintered world. Guard us with your love, we pray, and help us to tread boldly in the footmarks of Jesus this day and every day. Thank you.